Here we go. Blog Talk Radio. Let's get lost in a better place. Pick up a bird, travel through time and space. So much to learn, so much to see. A chance to escape reality. Open your mind and your heart. Gain new knowledge, get a fresh new start. MJ Network will bring you there. This is MJ Network, MJ in memory of my sister, Marsha Joyce, who started me on this path of interviews, and we have the author of The Madness of Q here. This book was so good. Mathematics professor Sam T. Garden is plunged into an epidemic of religious bloodshed on a mission to resolve a crisis between, believe it or not, suicidal cults and homicidal extremists. An ancient document is at the heart of the plot. The ancient encrypted document is called a Q document for the German word quell, meaning source. Working both ends against the middle, he struggles to survive a journey from New York, Israel, Rome, and Berlin. So join me when I interview the author and takes the spotlight right now. Good morning, Gary. How are you? And welcome to MJ Network again. Good morning to you, Fran, and thank you so much. It's a pleasure to return. Yes, this is, this book really was great. And, you know, I never know when publicists are sending me something. So I just read it and I go, okay. Then I sat down and read this. So I just read it. It's really good. Now, the first thing got me. It really tri- Oh, you trick, you trick readers. How did you create the first thing with the professor and the archbishop that really was not who he said he was? That was not very nice. <laughs> it's... Uh... It's uh, definitely a, a, a stunning, stunner of a beginning where the, uh, yeah. the, the professor and the anthropologist there in, uh, who's done some work in northern Israel is back at his uh, laboratory in Santiago de Compostela up in the northwest Galicia corner of Spain. And he's visited by this um, priest, uh, allegedly sent by the Vatican, but it turns out he's actually a hitman. And he kills the, uh, it, this is not uh, any kind of a spoiler alert, really, because it is the first scene, after all. And he kills the anthropologist because this yeah. uh, researcher has discovered a document in northern Israel that may not sit very well with the Vatican. I felt so bad because he got duped. And I liked, I, you see, archaeology is my thing. I took that in college. I love archaeology. So I said, forget that. That's not fair. So why didn't yeah, the guards no. question this man? Why did they just let him through? Well, let's see. It's because he was smart enough to know how to just be let through. He was dressed, I, I believe the word is Monsignor, which is yeah. a cross between uh, a cardinal and, uh, and somewhere near in the ranking, somewhere near a cardinal. And um, he contained held papers that... Uh, proved him to be an emissary of the Pope. And um, so they let him uh, into the cathedral and then go down into the depths underneath the cathedral where the archaeologist slash anthropologist uh, Professor Zerberon had uh, his office. And once he entered the office, he made sure he had the right man. And then uh, uh, 
um, something rather nasty happens, and that kicks off the run for your life thriller that involves the return of Sam Teagarden, who, of course, is a, an American and a mathematician who teaches uh, uh, at Columbia University in New York City. Well, Columbia University is a great university. I went to college, went to Manhattan in New York City. So I'm looking at the book because I opened to have the book in front of me, so I have to add this. This is interesting. Chapter 2 says, The Herd Mentality. How come all these people decided the first event of mad mast madness among ecclesiastics occurred near the town of Biona, Spain? How did you create that? And why did these people do that? Oh, my God. That was so good. Well, it, it was actually fun to write, you know. Um, I oh, determined God. that... The, <laughs> Well, you know, writers, we, 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 can be, we can be quite nasty when we sit down in front of a keyboard. But uh, yeah. ultimately, maybe we're passive, happy, nice people. At least I hope I am. But here's the thing. Once that document was found by Professor Zerberan in, beneath uh, an ancient church in northern Israel, which is no longer a church. It's really just rubble now. But once mm. that document is found, it's, um, he proves it to be the Quell document or maybe yeah. Quella. It's a, as you mentioned in the opening, it's a German word meaning source. And um, it's a theorized document to actually exist. This is not fiction. It's not proven to exist, mm-hmm. but it's theorized by biblical scholars to exist as being one of the missing sources for two of the synoptic gospels, the gospels of Matthew and Luke. So when this, fiction, when this document is discovered, Professor Zerberon proves it to be the Q document, Q for Quella document, meaning source. And then he discovers through translation of the ancient Greek, which is what the uh, original, mm. all, all of the Gospels were written in, in, in high Greek. Once he uh, translates that and decodes the portion that is actually encoded, he finds that there are certain passages that uh, may be somehow contrary to the dictum of the Gospels and, and, and the story of the Gospels. And so that disturbs the Vatican on the one hand and excites uh, an extremist atheist group on the other hand, and that becomes a point of contention in the plot. And because of that, the story leaks, and unstable cult members get a hold yeah. of the news, and, mi- and many of them become, uh, well, suicidal. And, of course, for that, I drew upon uh, the, the Jonestown suicide event and also upon the, uh, the other suicide event there in California where people wanted to uh, go pursue the Hale-Bopp comet and, uh, and ride for all eternity in outer space. And they took a, a fatal dose of, uh, uh, I think it's ricin and vodka yeah. laced with applesauce so it wouldn't taste bad. Uh. And, and so I kind of... I kind of drew upon all of that sort of scary cult mentality, uh, unstable mentality, and and people who don't have enough sense of self to understand that they need to rationalize these stories instead of just taking them at face value. And so that contributed to the global crisis. And the crisis is the reason why the White House and the FBI and ultimately the CIA uh, feel compelled to get involved and try to assuage the pain and the agony of these people taking their lives. And so they call upon Sam Teagarden. 
Now, he's sort of already famous because readers who have read the prequel, which was called Flight of the Fox, knows that Sam Teagarden uh, became both a hero and an anti-hero within the domestic U.S. because of an issue in that prequel story called Flight of the Fox. So because he's rather famous and because some people actually refer to him as the American Prometheus, um, he's tapped to go along with the FBI and the CIA to try to address this crisis of suicide. Um, but really all he is is window dressing to uh, give the appearance that the U.S. is actually doing something to try to contribute to an end to the global and widening crisis involving the discovery of this mysterious document that may or may not be a legitimate document. I know, that's what I figured. This is really scary. Listen, the net, as you just described, the one with applesauce, I just read that that's chapter four. I got that, three, chapter three and four. So we've got March yes. 10, 2025, and you said that there were, the FBI director, William Dragon, Dragon, comes in, and uh, Mykov Cranston and a whole bunch of other people come in. How do they re- work together, plus with the President of the United States? Preferably one in the book that's better than some of the ones that we've had in the past. You never know. <laughs> well, as this crisis widens around the globe, the crisis of uh, yeah. suicidal cults, um, there's pressure, as you might well imagine if this were, in fact, real, there's pressure on the White House to do something. What are we going to do about this? So mm. the, the president, um, a fictional president, orders uh, the FBI to look into this to see what can be done. And because it's an international crisis, the FBI, which is a domestic operation, cannot fully participate in this, so they have to liaison with the CIA. And then when they tap Sam Teagarden to come and help them, or at least just accompany them and make them look good because he's, he's, he's uh, an advertisement for, to the world that we really are trying to do something here. And uh, they send them over in what is supposed to be a very brief mission, first uh, mm-hmm. into Israel, and then it's supposed to just come right back but it doesn't work out that way because the same hitman who murders Professor Zerberan in the very first chapter is um, also, now that um, Professor Sam Teagarden is involved, he's also got his sights set on Professor Sam Teagarden. So he he pursues Professor Teagarden from northern Israel to Venice, Italy, to Rome, Italy, and then ultimately to Berlin. That's scary, let me tell you. So why was he forced to go with the guards? He had no choice, but he had to go with the guards to Israel. What if Sam really didn't want to do it? He had no choice at all? He had to go anyway? I was very worried about him. He didn't want to do it at all because he didn't want to to go. But uh, his his wife sort of suggested if you can do some good in the world because you are a famous individual and you're called American Prometheus, go and try to help these people put an end to this horror show that's spreading around the globe. And so he reluctantly agrees, and he's assured of his safety. But then he essentially loses his bodyguard in northern Israel following a, yeah. um, what, I, what I see as a, 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 a dramatic confrontation there um, in the tunnels below the ancient church in northern Israel, a place yeah. called Megiddo. And uh, so from there, he's on his own. And now he's living by his wits, and he's uh, really a, kind of a Robinson Crusoe figure once again. That's really the thrust of the prequel and now the sequel. It's a run-for-your-life thriller uh, with Sam Teagarden, who is 
doing sort of a Jason Bourne type run. But here's mm-hmm. the key difference. He's every man. He's an ordinary fellow. He's frightened of violence. He does not have a firearm. He is not a black belt in karate. All he has really is his will to survive and his, uh, and his intelligence. And um, so as they're pursuing him, he, uh, he actually sweats. He cries. But ultimately, of course, because he is the protagonist, the hero of the novel, he ultimately prevails. And that, again, is not a spoiler alert, but uh, readers understand that. It's, it's a roller coaster ride, as all run-for-your-life thrillers are. Uh, but in this case, it's with sort of an everyman figure. He's brave. Let me tell you. It's my profession. I'm a reading <laughs> and writing specialist. And I don't think I want to get quite, quite a quiet building, but not that. So what's the significance of the numbers on page 27, 14, 18, 23? How did you come up with that, the significance? Do you believe in numbers will always behave in a comfort way with your view of what is and what is not true mathematics? Why does he, what, is, what is the thing about numbers? Because he's talking to his students. Yes, that's in the opening scene with Sam Teagarden after the murder of yeah. Gerberon, of the murder of the professor. And yeah. Sam Teagarden is challenging his students to think outside of the box. Instead of just advanced calculus and algorithms, he's trying to challenge them to think creatively. So if I were to say to you the following numbers, 14, 18, 23, 28, 34, 42, 50, 59, 66, etc., what would you think? Well, of course, you already know because you've read the book, because you read on. And none of the students in his class got the answer. The answer is that's every stop of the number one Broadway local from 14th Street all the way up to 215th Street in the Yeah, LeBron. I know. <laughs> that is, that, that is scary. Students, so we have to get to the guy that was supposed to protect him with Klassen, right? What, 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 he's the Asian that was supposed to protect Sam. Well, at least he was supposed to protect him. And then there's yes, the, the, uh, the chapter that really I love, Chapter 12, See, that's just because I keep the book in front of me. Uh, Cynthia Blair, what was her what was her role? Why did he keep emailing her, and what was she trying to do to help him? I guess. Well, Cynthia is his wife, and she that's is not wife, allowed right? to accompany him. Yes, she is not allowed to accompany him on his trip with the CIA agent um, to northern Israel. Um, but he loves her, and she's with him spiritually, and so he's sort of constantly talking to her, knowing. Um, how she would react and how she would encourage him if she were mm. with him. And I've gotten, a, I've gotten a lot of positive feedback on that. Uh, readers uh, say to me yeah. they especially like the way she spoke to him in his imagination. Um, I did that because I had to. He needed a partner, but he had to be alone because, after all, it's a run-for-your-life thriller. Um, so I made his partner um, essentially a friend in his, uh, in his uh, mind, in his spirit. It's kind of like that uh, Tom Hanks movie where he's stranded on a desert island and he makes friends with a soccer ball who he names Wilson. Uh, well, in this case, it's a real person, and it's his wife, and it's Cynthia, who, uh, who uh, he, he never lets go of her, and she, he's always thinking of her and wondering, what would Cynthia tell me to do in this situation? And that's what helps propel him forward, and it's ultimately what helps him to survive. That I do know, because sometimes when I feel down and out, I said, what would my sister tell me to do? And I talked to her wherever the heck she is up there. And, yeah, you know what? Sometimes you have to do that. You need some faith in something else. Does it work else for you? Else. 
I, I would talk to talk to my sister wherever she is up in heaven, and I would say, "Okay, yeah. Marsha, what would you do? What would you tell me to do to get out of this mess?" And I would figure it. Out. She used to say to me, "Just tell me, and I'll figure it out." I go, "But you're not here. You got to tell me what to do." So, who is uh, Elad? Who is Elad? Elad. He, oh, he's the heavy, the heavy of heavies. He's yeah. he's the uh, he's the he's the hitman. He has a very dark personality, and he's a, a former uh, Mossad agent for the nation of Israel. But emphasis on the word former. He's actually been removed by the Mossad because he was so sort of cuckoo, and now he's gone so low. And he uh, he's a freelancer, and he now is a hitman for whoever pays him the highest around the globe. Mm. And in this case, uh, in this case, it's the the darker forces within the Vatican. This isn't an assault on the Vatican or or His Holiness the Pope, but you know it's yeah. it's kind of fun to consider that there are dark forces in any governmental organization. And in this case, he is the hitman for uh, um, well the people within the Vatican who are worried about the Q document and whether or not it is a legitimate document. So well, hopefully, you got to have a white hat and you got to have a black hat. Yeah. And yeah, no, because if you don't have somebody that's bad, what is the point of the novel? That has to keep me uh, interested. The point of the, uh, the well, first of all, it's it's a thriller, so the point I hold yeah. is is a really fun roller coaster ride for the reader. Yeah, it is. Um, which is always which is always the part of the the motivational force to keep the reader turning the page. But if there's a point, it, it has to do with um, um, not taking things at face value and thinking them out and mm-hmm. being smart about your life and uh, and challenging uh, certain assertions within the media and uh, and elsewhere, whether it's uh, religion or um, social uh, media. There's, in fact, there's. Um, I kind of prognosticate something that I think is coming, which is social apps, apps that control your life and yeah, tell you are. what to do they and are. when to wake up and and when to when to eat and uh, when to when to take a break from your work and so forth. It's called Lola, and it stands for Love of Life's Adventure. And um, one of the characters in the novel mm-hmm. follows Lola. And when Sam Teagarden is introduced to this, which he'd heard of, but when he's introduced to mm-hmm. people who actually live their life according to Lola, he's astonished yeah. at the foolishness of people. Um, you know, you, Frank, I can certainly imagine that this is sort of coming down the road for us. What do you think? That would be scary. Well, there are people that do that. And there are people that actually can't, can't handle their lives unless somebody actually programs them or tells them what to do. It's It's frightening. Uh-huh. And I know, and I know people like that, and I know people that believe in, you know, the paranormal and these other people, these fortune tellers and stuff. Oh, I'm going to talk to so and so before I do anything. I said, why don't you start thinking for yourself, and realize that maybe exactly. you're getting conned. They don't, they don't see it. It's scary. Yeah, exactly. So um, why did you, con- you ask what con- the point of the novel is? I think that would be it. Think for yourself. That would and, be it. Uh, yeah. Uh, maybe. Yeah. So why did Carson wind up in the hospital? And how does poor Sam oh. manage by himself? I felt so bad because I like Carson. I go like, wait a minute, how did you get there? <laughs> Carson is an FBI agent who yeah, I like him. Um, early on saved Sam T. Garden's life when he's in his uh, room at the mathematics building at Columbia University. 
But then um, the hitman tries to uh, take out Sam Teagarden there in New York. He fails, but he disables Klassen, he, Klassen uh, Agent Klassen, a special agent FBI Klassen, is uh, wounded in the assault by the hitman. And uh, so he's hospitalized, and he cannot uh, accompany Sam Teagarden on his trip to Israel. So an FBI, a CIA agent instead does accompany Sam Teagarden. And, uh, you've read the novel, so you know what that's all about. But Klassen is important because he arranges the whole deal as per uh, the suggestion by the White House that the U.S. must get involved in this widening crisis around the globe of um, spreading popularity of cults taking their lives because of fear, fear about whether or not this so-called Q document contains any authenticity as to the uh, founding days of Christianity. This really, this is so interesting. So here's where it gets interesting. What is freedom from God? And who is involved in that? And that's where I go like, oh my God. (laughs) That's in fact um, the alternate side of faith, um, which is... um, an organization that's equally fervent and equally inflexible in their viewpoints and demands of their members. Freedom from God is an atheist organization. It's fictional, of course. This is, after all, a novel. And Freedom from God um, is interested in this Q document because they think the Q document may prove their point. So they very much want to connect with Sam Teagarden and prevent him from being harmed by the darker forces that want him to be uh, killed, in this case, the hitman, the uh, the ex-Mossad agent. So when Sam Teagarden hooks up first with uh, Freedom From God, they actually like him and want to work with him and keep him safe. And then as the story progresses, questions uh, begin to emerge as to whether this Q document is even legitimate in the first place. And Mm. if it's not legitimate, then the the motives of these two forces actually flip and freedom from God um, are opposing but continuing to release the data that may prove the Q document is false. Whereas the hitman actually working for the Vatican now very likely should want the Q document to be exposed as being fraudulent. So it's just a, a point about how confusing things can be and how you really need to wait uh, for the facts to emerge and to think for yourself and to, to find the base of uh, what the truth is. Well, I couldn't put this down. And so Can what I tell you how I F- first came... I'm sorry. You've heard people say that before? <laughs> well, I, I just wanted to tell you, may I, t- may I tell you how I first uh, heard about the Q document, which is an actual theory? You know, yeah, I you got that's why I was going to ask that next, and... That's good. That's even okay. better. My wife and I, uh, we're lucky enough to have a little house up here in Sullivan County, and we enjoy listening to books on tape or, or, or streaming books. And um, I was listening to one of those programs, one of those adult uh, courses called um, um, Learning, Learning Courses USA, I think it is. And it was mm-hmm. about the New Testament, about the history of the New Testament. And mm-hmm. towards the very end, the professor, the, uh, the, the religion professor at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, just very casually mentioned this theory that there was a Q document as a source 
are a missing source for much of Matthew and Luke, two of the three synoptic gospels. And I had never heard of it. So after I finished that course, I looked it up and uh, became fascinated and checked out a couple of books and read more online about it. And I knew as a, as a novelist that this was a wonderful subject for a thriller novel. It's a what-if thesis. What if the Q document were actually discovered? And what if once discovered it said something that the Vatican didn't want it to say? What if once discovered it did say something a militant atheist organization did want it to say? And so uh, I just took it from there with my imagination, and that's how the novel was born. Um, but some biblical scholars actually believe that it really is a Quella document. Um, the first fellow who suggested this theory was a German biblical scholar, and um, the German word for source is Quell or Quella, Q-U-E-L-L-E. And uh, I think it's just a fascinating subject, and the Q document, wherever or whatever it is, may ultimately actually be discovered someday. That would be very interesting. Well, the, the chapter that got me was the chapter where they found the fragments, 14, 15, and 16, which is chapter 34. So how did you create those uh -huh. documents? Are those real, or did you create what they say? Uh, 34, I'm just thumbing there. Right. It's, it's all fiction. There it is. Yeah. It's all fiction. Oh right? yeah, I just had. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It's all fiction. No, no. It's it's complete fiction. It's good fiction. Though. Um, it's a product. It's a product of my imagination, and um, it's drawn upon uh, Paul. Um, Paul, of course, is really the founder or the the person most responsible for spreading the uh, the theology of Christianity in the early months and the early years of uh, the first century. And so I kind of imagine what if Paul were to write these particular fragments that uh, have been discovered buried beneath this ancient church in northern uh, Israel. Um, it was kind of fun to do. Uh, um, and, uh, and readers have responded very well. They've enjoyed this, and I'm glad that you enjoyed it. That was, yeah, I couldn't put that part down. So how does he always seem on his, someone's radar? Poor Sam, it's like he has a tracking device in him. How do people always know where poor Sam is? I, like I wanted to tell him, oh, you know, disguise yourself, go hide or do something. But they always seem to find him. Even on the ship they find him. They find him everywhere. How come? Well, uh, yeah, he's being followed. He's being followed by two separate forces. One force is the hitman who's been hired by the darker. Yeah. Um, interests of the Vatican, and the other force is the um, militant atheist organization. And when he's with the CIA in the first journey into Israel, the automobile has a tracker device on it. That's simple yeah. enough and routine enough. Uh, but then he escapes the CIA and manages to take a cruise ship from Israel to um, Italy, and it's there where he's followed by this militant atheist group because they're actually tailing him the old-fashioned way. They're just keeping their eyes on him. So that's mm. what's going on there. And then once he turns up, and um, he goes from Italy to Berlin, once he turns up in Italy, then the hitman is back on his trail because um, there are an awful lot of people and an awful lot of talk and uh, networking going on about where is Sam Teagard. And um, it's a bit of an espionage thing there. A little bit of high-tech stuff going on in the 
terms of communication, but not too much because uh, I, I'm always kind of turned off by those Jason Bourne movies where they walk <laughs> around in an office full of computers and they say, get me the camera in the parking deck in Berlin on Bergenstrasse Street. And, you know, that doesn't really happen. So that's not really happening in this novel. But what is happening it is um, in the same way that the FBI and the CIA sort of tracks Al-Qaeda and other darker forces around the globe. You just listen into their chatter online, and that's what's going on, and that's how they know to follow Sam Tebow. I'm glad you said that because sometimes they ignore the chatter that's online and don't pay close enough sometimes attention to it. I know which explains the, yeah. the show I'm going to do, the broadcast I'm doing on April 5th, with Dr. Charles Toftoy, which is 34 um, historical events that could have been avoided, starting with 9-11. And I found that kind of fascinating. And I promised him I would do a review eventually, I hope. But he's on a ship. And how does Sam connect with the porter and why? Why does he trust him? He shouldn't trust anybody. Okay, so... Except himself. Right, so... This stems from the very first chapter with the murder of Spanish professor Zerberon, who actually discovered these fragments. And the yeah. fragments have been uh, leaked to the militant atheist group, which has followed Sam Teagarden onto the ship. But, and, and they give him the fragments, and they want him to help decode these final four fragments that are actually encoded. Um, the first series of fragments is actually a reflection of Matthew and Luke, so it's it's identical to what we have today. But there are four deep encoded fragments. And that's what the scary part is. And the militant group wants them to be decoded. Sam would like to help, but he doesn't speak uh, ancient Greek. I believe it's called Kane Greek. And there is, however, a porter on board. He's a young man who is originally from Greece, and he's working to pay off his college tuition. And Sam Teagarden and his now ally from Freedom From God, the militant organization, um, conscript this young porter to help them uh, decode the final four fragments. And then as it turns out, that is again what is kind of a flashpoint that propels the plot forward once more because it's at that point, um, I don't want to reveal too much here, but it's at no. that point that Freedom From God flips from being an ally of Sam Teagarden to being opposed to Sam Teagarden releasing the truth that they discover once they actually do decode these documents. Because um, the militant organization wants the documents to be legit. The, after all, the name of the group is Freedom From God. And, um, and then uh, the Vatican actually begins to start flipping its position against Sam Teagarden. And everything just becomes so confusing. And Sam Teagarden doesn't know which way to turn. But his goal ultimately is to end up in Berlin where there's a, already been scheduled a conference of um, a group of uh, Christian organizations, global Christian organizations, where he'll make his presentation. And um, that, of course, is, is the climactic scene. And then after that, the denouement of the novel, which I won't uh, reveal too closely, but um, let's just suffice it to say that the roller coaster picks up speed. <laughs> and, and it picks it up speed as they're heading to as they head toward this uh, conference, this uh, international conference of Christian organizations in Berlin, all of which is fiction. I invented the name of the organization and the 
But it, it's, it's well, the Vatican wants him you dead. Know, we know that. So yeah. I don't know if anybody wants to go visit him right now. I don't know how safe these things are. They get me worried. Like, oh, God. Yeah. I don't think the Pope would allow that. I don't think so. But before I forget, no. Wednesday, at a special time, only because it's this person, 11 o'clock, New York Times author Philip Margolin is going to be here with A Matter of Life and Death, a Robin Lockwood novel. He is absolutely great. He's the number one criminal defense lawyer in the planet, and he's fantastic. On Monday, talk to Charles Tolfoy, an incident in American history that should have been avoided. On the 12th, we have Mark Sassy, a diamond for her. And the diamond is not a ring. It's a baseball diamond. That's all I'm going to say. On the 19th, we have Daniel Palmer. On the 15th, we have Kerry Peralta. And on the 21st, we have Jeff Markowitz. And we have a lot more coming up in May, including Dick Belsky. He's going to start off May with his new uh, book, uh, Beyond the Headlines, which I read about six months ago because I couldn't put it down. So... Everybody has a government, so what part does the president play, and what happens when Sam decides to not stay quiet? He speaks out. Um, that's key to who Sam Teagarden is. In the prequel called Fly to the Fox, he discovered uh, something quite horrific in terms of revealing the truth about certain crimes in the 20th century of the U.S. pertaining to the assassination yeah. of JFK, RFK, and Dr. Martin Luther King. Um, again, all fiction, of course, but when he reveals the truth about those assassinations, he's known as the American Prometheus because he forces American history to be rewritten. And now in this sequel to that book, Madness of the Q, he's uh, discovering something that may or may not affect the history of religion um, globally. Um, as it turns out, of course, um, everything just gets all confused, and it's not as black and white as it was in the prequel with Flight of the Fox. Uh, but that's, mm. that's, a part, that's part of the point of the story. But because of this uh, madness of cult-driven suicide across the globe... Yeah. The, and do, they, do those ever really, stop? I mean, there are people that today still do FBI, it. Yes. And uh, he orders the FBI to look into it and see what they can do. And that's when they essentially tap Sam Teagarden pretty much as window dressing because he's famous from his previous uh, events um, where he revealed some not very nice facts about the FBI and about American history. So they begrudgingly tap him to assist. And uh, Sam Teagarden begrudgingly goes along on this second adventure in his life, which is a uh, Quite upsetting for him, but ultimately it ends, uh, well, let's just say there's, there's a lot of uh, unpleasantness from start to finish, but it ends with Sam Teagarden going, going home to his wife, which is not a spoiler. Which is really where he wants to go, but we're not going to tell if anybody if he gets there. Okay, the other thing <laughs> that was interesting is, you know, being an educator and working with students till this day to help them create term papers and a lot more than that. Um, page 316 and 317. How did you create the poorly plotted high school term paper? That outline. That was interesting. It has all the facts, basically, of everything that happened. So how did you create that? <laughs> Thank you for asking that. When I came to that scene, it's an action scene. It's a scene of violence, and it's a scene where there's some gunplay. I had this resistance 
to trying to write it out in a straightforward narrative form. And this is where I have some flexibility because my central protagonist, Sam Teagarden, really is an everyman. He really is frightened. He really does get nervous, and he really doesn't know anything about guns. So when I came to this action scene, I thought his mind isn't straightforward like a traditional television or cinematic hero who can uh, whoop people because he's a black belt in karate or knock a gun out of somebody's hand. Um, so he starts to visualize this action scene as though it were outlined in a high school or college term paper. Roman numeral mm-hmm. one, capital letter A, number one, lowercase a. And I thought, wow, that kind of works. I, I'm going to go with it. Now, I've had some negative feedback on that, people saying, ooh, I didn't Why? like that. But I've also had positive. I think they were just uncomfortable with an alternative form of narrative, which is really all it is. It's an alternative form of narrating an action scene. But it works for Sam Teagarden's mind because he is an everyman and um, and because he is an academic. So he naturally thinks in these terms. And I found it kind of fun. And to be honest, I also found it amusing to do. And, um, and it kind of got the reader through it kind of fast without the usual... Um, she jumped up, grabbed the gun, gun went bang. You know, even good writers of action scenes sometimes get uh, tired and bored with writing action. And this was kind of a fun alternative. Well, I thought it was clever. And so what if they messed up the outline and wrote the letters in the wrong thing or whatever? <laughs> they, they do. Big, all, all, there are people that, to this day, don't even, that are you know, edu- educated, don't even know what, a, what an outline is. As a matter of fact, sometimes I, I read books and they have an awful lot of typos, and I found a couple with with character mistakes too, where they spelt the character's name wrong or they put the wrong character in the sentence, and I go like, whatever, I'll figure it out. It's it's sad. Uh, so, who is Deacon Nasri, and who else's lives were sacrificed as a result of this document? Deacon Nasri, Deacon is the deacon of a small church in northern Israel which is beside the actual archaeological site where the dig takes place. Um, it's, it's a very small building, and um, a small congregation worships there. But next, the whole point is what's next to it, which is the archaeological dig where this ancient church in Megiddo um, has been excavated, uh, originally by Professor Zerberon, and Deacon Nazri lives there and oversees the archaeological site. So when uh, Sam Teagarden visits there with his CIA escort, they go into the tunnel below the uh, ancient site and explore the archaeological dig. And that's where, as I mentioned earlier, another dramatic scene takes place that is a flashpoint that propels the novel forward to the next series in the Run for Your Life roller coaster. But Deacon Nasri is a good man, and he uh, speaks mm. very honestly to the CIA agent and to Sam Teagarden and explains to them um, what exactly is going on here and that it's important to wait for the fragments to be fully decoded and investigated scientifically as well as from a theological point of view before drawing any conclusions. So the cult uh, suicides across the country are something that's deeply disturbing to him because he did not want the uh, fragments to be released prior to thorough study. And uh, he, it's genuinely upsetting to him that there is loss of life as a result of these uh, fragments being released to the public. 
but then what ultimately a... he plays he plays a key role there in that uh, in that flashpoint that takes place in that tunnel below the archaeological dig. What is the result of these documents? Can they do anything? Are they going to do anything? Is anybody going to pursue what they're about? Or are they just going to leave well, it where well, it is? The, the result is, are, are they authentic or are they not authentic? Yeah, and, um, Yeah, we can't really get too deeply because that would be a spoiler for the reader. Um, but that's, that's one of the key questions. Are they authentic? Uh, which is what Sam Teagarden discovers going forward when he has the steward on the cruise ship, who is Greek, help him uh, translate the ancient Greek into modern English. And uh, from there, things start to reverse and just become very confusing where uh, black is white and white is black and nobody really seems to know who's who anymore, which is a part of the whole confusion uh, about what these documents mean and, and whether or not they were even legitimate or might they be actually a practical joke committed by some first century monk who was just having a good um, sort of disgruntled employee type moment. Um, no one really knows and that's that's part of it for us that is sort of partially revealed there at the ending. But I, I will say to the reader um, who is yet to come that um, even at the end there's still a question mark going on as to yeah, what exactly these documents too, yeah. are all about. That's um, what I'm saying too. There's one other character I didn't bring up, Gretchen Morton. What part did she play before we talk about what's next? Greta Warren is one of the key Greta. leaders there in the uh, in the Freedom from God extremely God, militant yeah. atheist organization. And she, um, her name is actually interesting because if you say it fast, it sounds like get a war on. Yeah. Greta <laughs> Warren. <laughs> Greta Warren is a real piece of work. Oh, Greta. I enjoyed writing her. She's a, she's a, a militant um, cult member lady who's very smart, speaks several languages, has studied all over Europe and the U.S., and um, she is the one who traces Sam Teagarden to the cruise ship and then follows him to Berlin. And at first yeah. they're close allies and work closely together. And then uh, once they get to Berlin, they're, um, they're um, uh, each other's nemesis. And once again, that is one aspect of the confusing flip-flop of what, what exactly is going on here. Who can I trust and uh, what do these documents really mean? Um, I like Greta. She's weird. She's uh, she's definitely a cult member, and she's very inflexible in her way of thinking. And she wants people to agree with her, and she she just can't not fathom how certain other people uh, may have opinions of their own. And I know, Fran, you've surely experienced. We've all experienced people like this in our lives, where they're just intolerant yeah. of other people's viewpoints. Um, I'm hoping we're kind of pulling out of that here in the U.S. with. Uh, uh, an increase in tolerance and respect for other people's viewpoints as we move forward from our recent history. Well, I don't mind listening to somebody else's viewpoint, but it doesn't mean I'm going to be influenced by what they said. I have to really document exactly. it. I'm, I'm very funny about respect that. I mean, I could, somebody could say something to me and say, uh, what about this? And I'll go, I'll look it up until I, to prove whether it's true or false. I don't take anything at face exactly. value. I learned that from my dad. Yeah, he was like that. Sure. So, what would have what happened if Sam decided to join the Freedom of God? Would they have suspected him of something, of trying to stop? What would have happened if he infiltrated some of these organizations, just trying to to get the answers to the document? Uh, that's an interesting question. Uh, I'm I just not made sure it up. What would happen? 
<laughs> That's just me. He, 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 he's not interested in joining either group. He just wants to uh, do the job that he's uh, been asked to do uh, by the White House and um, retrieve the documents and try to contribute to the ending of the, uh, the spread of cult suicide around the globe. But he becomes embroiled in all these other questions, and his life is in jeopardy. So that's why he must run for his life. And uh, in, in the meantime, his primary objective is to survive, and his secondary objective becomes, okay, let's find out what's going on here and see if in the process I can still do my job for my country, as uh, requested by the President of the United States. I think the President should give him a job in his cabinet. That's as one of his idea. advisors or something like that. Because ultimately, he, he, as a math professor, he's not getting too much done here, people. You keep sending him out. Maybe we should just give him a job as a, as, a, as a PI or something like that. So how does he, he what kind of skills does he have that he's able to understand all of this stuff? He's brave, I tell you that. Intelligence and tenacity. Intelligence about the... Uh, facts of life and finding out what's going on with these fragments and tenacity will to live, which is what we all possess. We, we are all tenacious about our will to live and to get from one day to the next. And uh, that's what's happening with him. It's a unique problem for him because he's got now two different groups trying to harm him. On the one hand is the hitman. On, on the other hand is freedom from God, this extremely um, militant atheist group. Um, but that's that's really what drives the character forward, and then the plot of the uh, Run for Your Life theme forward. So Are you ever going to give him somebody to help him? Are you going to ever give him somebody to help him? You know, in the next one, is he going to always go out by himself? Is Cassin going to come help him, he or is he going to ever just try solve these by himself? Because I feel sorry for him. I get worried he, easily. <laughs> so do I. He he did have several helpers along the way. First, his wife. Second, FBI yeah. agent Klassen, who was wounded and then couldn't go with him. Third um, was the CIA agent, who he loses along the way. Fourth was Greta Warren, the militant atheist, who then yeah, but not enough. Him. Yeah, and then ultimately he meets, um, and we didn't bring this up. Ultimately, he meets another CIA agent on the train on his way to Berlin, who actually does stick with him and. Uh, and together with her, they uh, they prevail at the conference in Berlin. Um, she's one of my favorite characters, actually. She's a young woman. She's a CIA agent who works really as a bureaucrat, as an office cleric type um, at the office in Berlin. And um, she assists him uh, and uh, shepherds him through to the end of the novel. So is he going to bring this out in the open? Is he going to tell people, or is he going to keep this to himself? Or is it just you know, he has he to does. figure out he what does. to do? What is, what is he going to do with it? He does make a speech there at the conference in Berlin uh, yeah. where he reveals uh, certain truths, and he kind of criticizes the U.S. for not being more forthcoming about the need to put more uh, responsibility into the investigation of the suicide cult instead of just tapping him. But ultimately it is resolved and um, resolved somewhat satisfactorily. So I think the reader will find the, the speech that he makes there at the religious conference in Berlin to be a pretty good denouement uh, to resolve the whole issue. 
um, and uh, send them away feeling somewhat satisfied that the uh, protagonist got the job done and did the right thing as per um, well as as per the the, the narrative. Um, if he comes back, Sam Garden comes back for a third story. I'll yeah, that's what I want to know. Him, What's he coming back for? I'm I'm going to give him more of a good buddy. You know, I don't know exactly what he he's going to do when he comes back, but I I, I can give you a bit of a tease. Have you been reading this uh, story? It's fascinating to me about objects out there in the solar system that yeah. actual. Uh, Navy fighter pilots have actually seen. This is not imaginary stuff now. Fighter pilots and other airline pilots have actually seen these objects. Actually, I watch moving. that program all the time. <laughs> I it, do. It, I know exactly what you're talking about. It so is. Maybe, uh, maybe there's a story where somebody knows what this is all about and Sam Teagarden gets drawn into uh, revealing it to the public. That would be interesting. Well, I get, I get fascinated by that program because they go on boats. They show you some of the alien pictures and some of the uh, ancient Egyptian. They link them to so many different, so many different countries and and the past and so many different histories that I, I get transfixed. Between that and um, entombed and snapped, the murder programs where they're solving cases from years before, and how they solve them in the present. And when somebody finally says, when they have to take a, a, a coffin that the person's in. And they open it up like 20 years later to solve the murder because they're closed cases. Those are fascinating. I know it sounds sad, but closed cases are are always fascinating. This is fascinating. Okay, now you said something about how did you? The last sentence in the in the story is hilarious, and that (laughs) that that got me. That cracked me. How come you wrote that? That is hilarious. I said, yeah, of all the things in the world, the one thing he doesn't want to do is that. So how come he was watching that at the end? That was hilarious. So if you want to read it, I'll let you read it. The thing is, he's back home, and he has to take a cab from the airport. And he's, uh, um, well, he's offered a free cab ride, that's all. Um, There's a driverless cab service. Mm. um, And uh, he's offered a ride by the driverless cab service. Go ahead, Fran. It says, um, let's see, the next, he finished the debriefing forms, turned off his cell phone, and returned watching the Jason Bourne movie. That's one. That was, that was hilarious. Yeah. And then the last one <laughs> is, when the billboard wiped again, a blossom with one final message, to honor your great accomplishment, we offer you, probably offer you a free quickie. Lord have mercy on all of us, he muttered. That is hilarious. How come you wrote that? And how come you came up with that one? That's that's hysterical. Well, I should point out, if I may, for for your listeners, that in this case, the the driverless cab ride is called a quickie. Yeah. These are these uh, these, these driverless cabs are, are nicknamed quickies, and you just hop in and you enter your destination or call out your destination, and. There's no cab driver to talk to, so Zoom. He just quickly, the, the automation quickly takes you to your destination. And uh, Sam Teagarden was uncomfortable with that request. Um, welcome back to the U.S. In honor of your accomplishment, would you like to take a quickie? Um, I, I, like you, I found it quite amusing. And um, I, there is humor throughout the novel, I should point out. There's a great deal of humor. Yeah, there is. Kind of, 
to kind of balance because there's also considerable amount of violence. After all, it's a run-for-your-life thriller. So I enjoyed balancing it with humor. And uh, that's, that's a lot of fun for me. To, to If I think I can make the reader laugh and the next moment make them, oh, my God, turn the page, oh, my God, turn the page, then, then that's a real thrill as a writer. Well, what kind of research did you have to do for this one? Um, I had to research the Q document, as I as I yeah. mentioned earlier. That's that's a an actual, honest to goodness theory that I had never heard of, and um, that was a lot of fun to research that and to figure out who these uh, religious scholars were that theorized about this missing source for uh, Luke and Matthew, which were to ever be discovered would be um, originally in the ancient Greek language. Um, other than that, it was really just a matter of putting um, one foot in front of the other and sitting down every day at the keyboard and figuring out as you're going forward what the narrative is going to amount to. Um, um, answering your question, Fran, actually gets into that classic question, do you outline or do you not outline? And yeah. generally, I do not outline on paper. I do not have a complex outline. I only have a general outline in my head. I knew where uh-huh. I wanted to go and how how I wanted the plot to proceed and how I wanted the ending to be. But I do not know what's going to happen in the next chapter or the next chapter or the next chapter. So you kind of play, play that as it goes and uh, figure it out um, on, a, on a chapter-by-chapter basis and sometimes even on a paragraph-by-paragraph basis. Um, that's quite a challenge for a writer, but I find that that's the only way I can work. I just cannot write this complex outline that some thriller and crime and mystery uh, novelists do. And I envy them. Uh, because they they do it so well, but um, whenever I try to do that, three sentences in, my uh, my complex outline is tossed out the window, and I'm going down this rabbit hole. Um, it's unfortunate, but you know one can only work the way one can work, which you well, know it's well. It's funny that as you should say yourself. that because that's how I do my book reviews too. I don't write a matter yeah. or anything. I just sit down. I go inside my room and I close my eyes. And I go, okay, now what am I going to say about this book? How am I going to start it? And I, write, I have it in my head. Then I type it and pray that it comes out right. But by the time right. I read your book and I read read the book, I have the book memorized from page, from page one to the end. At least right. at least after I read it. <laughs> but yeah, it, it's it's hard. And I don't do outlining. I just do whatever. So what's next for you, and where can everybody learn more about you and your work? Oh, for learning more about me, uh, there's a website, graybassnight.com. This novel, Madness of the Q, is actually my fourth novel. Um, Two are thrillers, the prequel to this and now the sequel. And my first two novels, um, one is a historical, which I loved writing. It's set in Richmond, Virginia, during the close of the Civil War. I'm a native Richmonder, so that story came natural to me, and I grew up steeped in the lore of the Civil War, and I loved writing that. That's called Shadows in the Fire, and it's uh, set during the last few days that Richmond fell as the capital of the Confederacy, and it's told through the eyes of several slaves living in Richmond. My first novel is called The Cop with the Pink Pistol, and it's kind of a tongue-in-cheek romance, mystery, thriller um, about a New York City female police detective who, in defiance of police regulations, carries a, a pink 38 on her ankle. And mm. um, she's, uh, she's quite a character. Her name is uh, uh, Donna Prima. Um, <laughs> and do not, ever call, 
do not ever call her last name first and first name last because she is not a prima donna and she will get very angry at you. Her name is Donna Prima. That's funny because my principal that I work with, because I was tough, used to, when I walked into the meetings, I was the secretary for the UFT in my school, and he would walk in, he goes, oh, La Prima Donna is here, we better watch out, she's not going to let us get away with anything. It was one of those meetings where, you know, we had to tell him what was wrong and he had to listen, <laughs> and I was the one that had to tell him, he's, don't even mess with her, don't even try. <laughs> so this has been fun, and thank you so very, very much. Um, when the, the next one comes up, next one's going to be a, another Santiago sequel. Is that what's next coming up? I hope. You never know. I'm working on several uh, projects, um, a couple oh, of crime novels that do not involve Sam Garden, but um, a possible oh, uh, third sequel to Sam Garden is Cooking. So I'll keep you posted, if I may, Fran. Please do. Please keep me posted. Uh, everybody, um, Population Zero just went to the printers, and I'm hoping to get a copy of it, except I have the PDF on my phone, but I'm not allowed to give it to anybody. But I did put the cover up, and people I've got like 50 people that said it's great, and I've got 10 people that actually volunteered to you know, review it and hopefully not be tortured while they're doing it. You never know. <laughs> it's different. Um, Vincent Zandri gave me a blurb for the back cover, and so did Alan Topol. And they equated it to somebody writing The Twilight Zone, my my way. So I thought that was a great compliment, and hopefully everybody will like it. Atmosphere pick, Press picked me up, and we'll see what happens. And the worst will happen is I'll love it. <laughs> That's all that really matters. I'm very proud of myself. I wrote it to me because of this pandemic, because people are just not listening. And what would happen if you have to live in a world with no people? What if you were the only one? I thought that would be different. But, Gary, thank you so much for today. I'm going to send you the link in a couple of minutes for the show, and I'll send it to your um, publicist also so that your publicist can promote this even more. Everybody, I say at the end of every one of my shows, just one small ask. When you go outside, please protect yourself and everybody else. Please wear a mask. Everybody stay safe. Thank you so much, Gary. Everybody have a great day, and bye. Thank you, friend.